going on? You're listening to the Film Drunk Frogcast, coming at you not live from our frog quarters to you. I'm Vince Mancini. I'm here, joined as always by the irregular regular, Mr. Matt Lieb. I'm... What? Oh, keep going. I was going to stomp on it, but I'll let you do an intro. Oh, well, it's too late now. You've already fucking stomped on it. It's true. I'm a stomper. You already ruined it. I had a whole album I was going to sing of just puns that (laughs) rhyme with lump. Uh, no, I'm actually at a separate fr- frock quarters this week. Uh, I'm over at my mother-in-law's house in uh, San Francisco Bay Area. So, uh, you know, I'm very excited to be here. Very happy to, to frot inside uh, the house where my uh, wife grew up. My wife. That's fantastic. At. But you know what, Matt? What? We got some extra special guests we here do. with us today. We do. You mean this isn't just a normal fucky sucky pod like we usually have, where we just start <laughs> no. No, just we have... doing swears and not getting ads? Yeah, no, we have content this time. It's amazing. Holy crap. I can't believe they agreed to it. They're probably going to regret it. We'll see. Hell but yeah. uh, uh, we got Billy Corbin and Alfred Spellman, who you may remember from past interviews I did with them after... God forbid, Screwball, uh, The Last Cocaine Cowboys, all yeah. of the documentaries about South Florida. How you and doing, now, guys? Now they're here. What's yeah. up? Good to be with you guys. I already regret it. <laughs> Hell yeah. <laughs> Hell yeah. That's the one thing we like to do on this pod. We like to make guests realize up top that sometimes you should say no. Dude, I, I want to tell you, I, I have a real problem saying no to anything, which is probably the reason that we're here. And uh, it's because in our line of work as documentary filmmakers, obviously access is key, right? People have to Absolutely. say yes to us and agree to go on camera and talk mm-hmm. on the record. And so so I kind of feel it's not like a spiritual or karmic thing, but it kind of is. It's like I feel like I got to put yes out into mm, the world so that I will get yes. Because listen, if I, I, I talk to college students working on papers like that our docs cover like i'll say yes to to everybody because i i feel like if you who you never know you say no to one person they go on twitter like this guy sucks you know right yeah i don't know like and then people i don't know so that's my my feeling about it and i have to and and but then my goal is whenever i then do something my goal is to never be invited back again so you're on the right pod dude so that way i don't have to say (laughs) no because i won't be asked yeah. So like I always like they would ask me to like MC like you know charity events in Miami and so I'd always go and like make like off color inappropriate mm-hmm. like jokes or like roast the wrong people in the room or the right people in the room if you ask right. me and then I I don't get asked back again so that'll be my goal again uh, tonight. Well, I uh, mean you've cl- you've seen that it hasn't worked out so far. I think, uh, <laughs> I've invited you back more. What do I than- do to get canceled on this fucking pod? <laughs> <laughs> I've said everything. Uh, well, I'll, t- I'll tell you what. Right now, I, I, I Matt's coming live from uh, San Francisco, where our governor here in Florida tells me it's just an absolute sieve. If you just open those blinds right. behind you, it's just a cesspool it's of homelessness and degeneracy of, and right. fentanyl and mm-hmm. and whatever. Everyone here is drowning in fent and cum. And it's really, you know, just, uh, it's just, it's a hell world out here. No, it's I, actually I, very funny how many people... Uh, I've talked to in the last couple of weeks who are just like, what's happening in San Francisco? I hear everyone there is dying, but also is getting robbed. Is that how it is? And it's like, no, it's just, um, you know, all the uh, tech people now live in Marin working remotely. And so now more of the homeless people stand out. 
So now you, you have to, you have to notice them. And so you guys have like, ah! <laughs> <laughs> you guys have exported the worst of your tech bros to us here in uh, in uh, Miami and South Florida. Oh, Seriously, every, so, every every everybody who got everybody everybody who got me tooed out of Silicon Valley moved That's to right. Miami during the pandemic for fuck's sake. And yes. but I look, you can't you can't go wrong with a town. I remember being in San Francisco years ago, and I walked by like a pedicure you know place, yeah. and it was called it was called Hand Job, and yeah. I was like. I was like, this is this is kind of a fun place. Yeah, you know? it's mostly you know all of the small businesses here really like you know leaned into being it being kind of like the free love capital of the country, and so like you know you got like a uh, uh, squat and gobble is the name mm. of a very very popular brunch spot. Yeah. You know, it's I uh, had an I had an ex that lived across the street from this waxing salon, and I forget the name of it. But the font on the sign had like pubes growing out of it, and I yeah. always it always like disturbed me at uh, at a core level to see like a font a pube mm -hmm. font. Yeah. yeah. Well, you 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 guys are sort of the love town, like Florida. We're we're known for 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 our hate. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah, hate yeah. town. Big yeah, town. Yeah, we want to export that. Yeah, yes. yeah, yeah. That's why we got to get that Ron DeSantis. You know. He seems like a really chill guy who's got a lot of good ideas. By the way, so is there? Do you know the backstory on like the beach pic that became a meme <laughs> this week, where it's like him and his wife walking on the beach, and there's like no shadow or footprints behind no them. Footprints. They, they yeah. clearly like have been Jesus. photoshopped like at the level Jesus. of like a Central Asian dictator propaganda. Photoshopped. It was it was some J.C. Penny shit, is what yeah. that was like photo studio kind of shit. I mean, no, I mean, listen, it was bad. I mean, campaign like campaigns are notorious for just bad art and bad Photoshop and bad. Mm. And what is he wearing? What's that like? Sort of like just like, like a like golf normal room? human clothes, Billy. <laughs> it's like it's like it's like a it's like a gringo guayabera, and it like yeah. it fits so it fits so awkwardly over his sort of meatball shaped torso. It's it's really <laughs> uncomfortable. Rod. That's a guayabera claw. Uh, it's, uh, it's a big. <laughs> It's like, I mean, he's trying to project like I'm a regular American and I don't know, a baggy shirt and baggy shorts. Uh, he's not doing a terrible job on that. Yeah, score, it kind of sucks that like, yeah, when he's he's trying to be like, I'm just a regular person. And I'm like, yes, I actually do think you're a regular person. And that does not bode well based on my opinion of most people. Yeah. Did, you, did you see him eating the pizza on Fox News? Oh, oh, by the oh. way, nobody, nobody should eat on camera. Let's just right. start. They, like, let's Let's be fair about that. Alfred and I had the pleasure of 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 yeah, humble brag of of being on Anthony Bourdain's show uh, on nice. CNN, and we were eating stone crabs, which, Ooh. by the way, is an absolutely disgusting thing to yeah. to eat. I mean, anything that involves like you know like a hammer and a bowl mm -hmm. and a and 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 a you know what, what are they, the little uh, a finger dish finger dish mm -hmm. and like it's just it's it's a mess and like and they kept off camera. Nobody interrupted. They just let us talk and flip. But they kept going, eat, eat, because they, they needed footage of it. And I'm just like, it's the scut. Like we're talking yeah. and like Stone. It was you know, so no one should eat on camera. That said, if you watch him eat the pizza on Fox News this week, I absolutely believe the three finger chocolate pudding story. 100 percent, 100 percent, 100 percent. That and is, if, you've already, I, yeah. if you've already been marked as a weirdo, as as just an incredibly uh, uh, bizarre person, how can your campaign set up something like that? I mean, it, it, it's almost felt like a sabotage. Like, how could they possibly yeah. let this guy go eat pizza? His, his staff, his staff hates him. I don't think there's any. His campaign staff, they're absolutely all ex-Trump people him. who are just like they're just all double yeah. agents. Is the thing. Yeah. 
And they're, and they're all laughing their asses off. They're just yeah. off camera going, can you fucking believe this? That he let us, that he let us do this. But, but that's the thing. You yeah. have to remember about these campaigns. They're all a hustle. That's a bipartisan mm-hmm. hustle. These campaign, you know, these consultant cowboys who come in and you have a guy like Ron who has already raised a ton of money could could conceivably raise a ton more. Probably that's probably slowing now. He's definitely yeah. kind of the Jeb Bush of this primary. You know, like oh, yeah. he's going to light two hundred million dollars on fire. You yep. know, but but all of these folks on the campaign, they only get paid if there is a campaign. So uh. they have to encourage. They have to urge all this shit on. Otherwise, the money. Do it, you know, Ron. The, the money. You could kick his ass. I think yeah, you got yeah, this yeah. guy. Eat Go that pizza, it. Ron. Eat it. that pizza. <laughs> Eat it. You do. You look totally cool and normal when you do it. Don't be a pussy. <laughs> <laughs> not to not to sound like an extremely online fellow, which uh, apparently I am. Oh, yeah. It's just been it's been hilarious watching the influencer campaign. You know, it's one thing that you know, we've always had the consultant class, but now we have the influencer class. Mm-hmm. These pay, the paid Twitter trolls, and to see how many have been drummed from the Trump campaign now to DeSantis and are clutching their pearls and are horrified when Trump calls you know Chris Christie fat or uh-huh. says something about DeSantis's wife, and, and just the shock and 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 how appalled they are. By the by, the conduct is just hilarious. I watch. saw a wonderful long tweet this week. Oh, um, yes, know, the, go the on. long tweet this week. I think it yes. was the long tweet. Uh, it was by an ex-Trump guy who I assume uh, is now working for Ron DeSantis oh. or shilling for something non-Trump related. Is- I'm sorry. Is this the recovering Nazi? Is that yes? That's the one. Yes. 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 I'm glad we're all equally very online. Uh, (laughs) And it was amazing because I don't know who this guy is. I have no idea. All I see is like a long tweet, and I'm like, well, I'm not going to read this, but I'll give it a little. (laughs) And then you know, like two sentences in, it's like I know a lot of people. You know, I should I? uh, I know I shouldn't apologize because it never works out, but I feel the need to address the stuff I said about the Jews. And I was like, this is going to be great. I'm so excited. I love when people are just like, oh, the whole world needs to hear this because they're all talking about it. And it's like, no, you've just spread it. You've let, you've now let me, who had no idea who you are, know that, oh, here's a new Nazi to know about. I mean, right. I could have guessed he pays for Twitter. Any, 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 free, any, any tweet, I don't care how many characters it is, that begins with like so about the Nazi stuff, right? Yeah. Probably like yeah. to probably just not just stop there. You put it, put it in the draft folder. Yeah, never leave send. it in drafts. <laughs> sleep on never it. Send. Have a meal. Yeah. I'm, Have I'm, a I'm, meal. I'm, read your favorite book, even if it's Mein Kampf. Just read it, and just <laughs> fucking just take a moment to realize that this is not gonna go well. Yeah. This, I, I, it reminds me of the of the Oscars that Steve Martin and uh, Alec Baldwin hosted, yeah. and they had just done a movie, you know, with Meryl Streep. And talk, you know, they say they say, you know, every time anyone works with Meryl Streep, they always say the same thing. First, like, boy, can that woman act? Mm-hmm. And <laughs> second, what's with all the Hitler memorabilia? Yeah, um, that was, <laughs> that was, that was I do remember that. Yeah, good. Oh <laughs> uh, yes. So you guys, your latest project, uh, series of projects, right? Uh, <laughs> a sunny place for shady people. It's just your ongoing sort of um, documenting of uh, Miami corruption. So that's that's, that's the that's the that's like the umbrella genre, right? Yeah. The fire the fire fire hose of Florida fuckery. Yeah, we've yeah. made our living doing obviously long form feature documentaries and miniseries. And Billy and I will often we have a spreadsheet actually of stories that we would love to tell, but are just don't deserve 
hour and a half or multi-part treatments. They're just fantastic stories of Florida fuckery that deserve to be exposed and to be uh, ridiculed uh, and 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 to, to a wider audience. And we just haven't we'll, had a, We'll never live long enough to tell all right. of these. There's yeah. so many of them. Yeah. So we've always been looking for kind of a short form version, the Raconteur 60 Minutes or Raconteur Dateline, if you will. So some Ooh, place for it. shady people has become kind of our umbrella for this, this concept uh, that we're putting together now for telling uh, telling more short form uh, stories of the Raconteur uh, branded Florida fuckery that we've become known for. And this is for Hulu, right? No, this is not for Hulu. This is going to be something we're doing. We're going to do online for the web. Uh, we're, oh, uh, sorry. We're what was the... With... Okay, go ahead. Sorry. <laughs> There's a lot of projects, Vince. So yeah, we, I know. We, we can work keep... through. But, uh, but no, this is, this is going to be our... our uh, we're doing a web series uh, in partnership with uh, Meadowlark Media. Billy's been... Uh, uh, Dan Levitard's been a friend uh, uh, for, for years and years now, and Billy's uh, been doing his Because Miami segments on Dan's podcast. And so this is kind of an outgrowth, was inspired by an outgrowth of, of Billy's Because Miami work on, uh, on uh, Dan Levitard's podcast. Sorry about that. I misread a variety piece about your old documentaries. You know, they're going down the list of credits. and I... Well, we've, we've been doing this 23 years now. Then, so you know, <laughs> yeah, I, I'm even shocked at how far back our filmography goes. Yeah, uh, you're talking to uh, guys who have... Um who do two podcasts. That's it. That's all we do. <laughs> Which is a yeah, lot. You do them all the time though. We I do mean, them all the time. It's like, I'm hey. not, you know, I, we're very good at it. I mean, prolific. Definitely which, which, prolific. which reminds me, I think to promote this episode, you guys should Photoshop your faces onto the Ron and Casey DeSantis beach. Mm, that's a photo. great idea. That that's should be the, idea. that should be the key art for this episode. I can, can do you, that. Hey, do you want to start a, a podcast? <laughs> <laughs> Start producing I, this one. That'd be just, great. Well, welcome to the No Footprints podcast. Yeah. I'm Billy Corbin. <laughs> yeah, um, it is. Oh, go ahead, Vince. Yeah, no, go ahead. Well, I was going to ask about the first, the first installment, which is about uh, Lev Parnas. Is that the? Is that? Well, no, the no, that's that, that is it. <laughs> That is a separate project now. Oh my god! That is a future documentary. All right. I'm curious about that one though too. We'll just go ahead. Just uh, just let us talk. We'll just tell you everything. Listen, I was in I was in Indiana Jones until about ten minutes before this podcast, so I didn't get get to prep quite at the level that I normally do. So uh, we are doing a project with Lev Parnas. Lev, who you might remember, is uh, one half of Lev and Igor, mm-hmm. the, uh, the two gentlemen who had uh, essentially partnered with Rudy Giuliani in 2019 to be a Trump shadow secretary of state and to travel the world digging up dirt on Joe and Hunter Biden <laughs> in an influence campaign to try to sway the 2020 election. And now the dirt that they dug up back in 2019 is now being used by Congressman Comer and the Republican House to try to sway the 2024 election. So uh, Trump really, you know, in, in, in Trump's uh, cheap way, he's really getting to use the material twice, which I'm sure he's really uh, uh, fond so, of uh, yeah. being able to. Uh, it's, to it's, 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 the, it's the only time you can get Republicans to recycle. Um, is, yeah, is this right. Is this, gar- is this good, garbage? Good but but Lev, thank you. The, uh, Lev, um, Lev is a, is a Florida man, of course. Um, the, you know, he's a guy, well, he was, he was born in Ukraine, um, moved to, uh, moved to New York and then moved to, to Florida. Um, and so he's very much in the kind of stable of these sort of, um, 
uh, what what is your term, Alfred? <laughs> your raconteur, uh, lovable scoundrels. Yeah, these sort of like lovable scoundrels, and you know, this is a guy who effectively betrayed both of his countries, uh, as, as the way he puts it, uh, both the Ukraine and the United States. Um, but really thought that we, the term he uses to describe himself and his relationship with Donald Trump is Coltonized. Um, and he, I, I don't think that's a real word, but he coined it. And I think we understand. What I it think means. I get it. Makes, yeah. Uh, and so he, but he's one of the, the few people who sort of totally escaped the cult and really turned entirely on him. And he, he got the guy impeached uh, the first, the first time, I think of the 300 pages, he claims a hundred of those pages are his evidence that he provided to Congress. And he tried to go and testify uh, and attend and possibly testify the impeachment hearing, but you you were not permitted to bring in electronic items uh, objects into the into the room, and he yeah. had an ankle monitor from yeah, the feds, yeah, yeah. so he was he could not. Uh, no, they're worried not uh, the that Diane Feinstein's going to get electrocuted. <laughs> so <yeah. laughs> well, the pacemaker is the yeah. is what's I mean. Uh-huh. It's gonna, yeah. So but but, but so no so it's called uh, it's called from Russia with Lev is ah, the name of the of the project, nice. and and so. Um, it is this kind of political farce of this guy who is sort of he started a company. Eleven Igor started a company in Florida called Fraud Guarantee, and they paid Rudy Giuliani about a half a million dollars to help promote it. They and named it him, Fraud Guarantee. <laughs> and I said to him, I said, Lev, who named this company? And he goes, It was me. I wish I. He goes, I, It meant that like it was supposed to be like a fraud protection service that sure. like guaranteed that you wouldn't be defrauded. And then of course he he gets busted in part for defrauding his investors in fraud guarantee. Damn it! I so, made it too easy. I should have very gone much with like the other name. <laughs> the Lionel Hutz bit. <laughs> it's like, no, they got this all wrong. It's supposed to say. <laughs> supposed to say. Uh, <laughs> no retainer. Comma, money Works down. on retainer. No <laughs> money yeah. down. No money down. <laughs> <laughs> Well, we always look for the the narrative genre analog in our docs. So we always say when we're making Cooking Cowboys, we're making you know we're, our approach to this is we're going to make a gangster movie. We're going to make yeah. a documentary the way that Marty Scorsese would tell this story. That was kind of our our north star. Yeah. Uh, so he's like your ball. Ray Liotta. Your yeah. Well, uh, right, well, well. For for this, this is a straight Coen Brothers farce. Uh, sure. Very similar to our to our doc Screwball, which we also kind of referred to in the same way. Yeah. But that was the approach that that we took there, and 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 Lev certainly. Would fit into the uh, canon of a of a uh, the Coen Brothers very nicely if they were mm-hmm. to ever do Docs. Oh, I, yeah. I think he would be a perfect Coen Brothers character. And I think that's important to remember that you know that that documentary is not a genre of film; it's a it's a style of film. And so you can make a documentary in any genre, uh, mm-hmm. you know, film. You know, so you can make a comedy, a musical, a romance, right. even you know, even sci-fi. Um, and uh, uh, you can do a. Uh, an action movie, you could, you know, a war movie. I mean, you name yeah. it. So any genre that you love, you can, there is a, there is probably a seminal film in that genre that happens to be a nonfiction uh, film. And right. so, um, and so that's, that's always where we start. Like, what is the genre that we're working in? You know, like dogfight or backyard fighting documentaries, like kind of in an, you know, an eighties kind of action movie, like a karate kid or like a Rocky sequel. Like that was the vibe that we very much wanted it to, to have. Cocaine Cowboys is a gangster movie. 537 votes is a, you know, is a, is a, is a kind of a political farce like this one. A screwball is a, is a comedy. I mean, there's no doubt about it. Like it, it's a, it's a, um, it's a, it's a heist comedy is really right. what it is. You know, do you guys ever consider 
doing a documentary that doesn't require like a nightmarish amount of exposition. I feel like the last two, you guys really <laughs> were like, you know what? We really want to hurt ourselves with trying to explain like the most serpentine uh <laughs> like scams and uh scammers in the world we, we we box ourselves into the macro part of our stories sometimes we kind of back you know well for example god forbid it, you know came to us gene carlo grande reached out to us uh you know uh, uh in june of 20 um and we first met with him and agreed to do the project in november of 20 and it was you know, it was a you know it was a political sex romp yeah. for like latent sex romp and then january 6th happened and we saw a lot of the religious iconography of January 6th, which led me down the rabbit hole of Christian nationalism, yeah. a phrase that I was totally unfamiliar with, a political movement that I was totally unfamiliar with. Oh, it's a lot of fun. <laughs> well, so all of a sudden we set a Google alert for it and I started getting all these hits. And so we said, well, you know, how can we frame this story in a larger sense against this, this movement that appears to be taking hold uh, and also explain how the evangelical community four out of five came to support a thrice married mm. failed casino owner uh yeah you know which, which never made sense yeah. to well uh, everyone has their faults alfred i mean well, everyone, <laughs> you know, jesus made a lot of us imperfect vessels for his word and indeed indeed but know, uh, that I, was that was the question that we sought to answer there so Vince, that's that's how we backed into that uh that that uh, that storytelling on God. I mean, I definitely think about that every time I watch uh, Righteous Gemstones. Now that it's uh, yeah, yeah. Well, now I, that it's well, back on. I think I think Vince, when you and I talked about that project. I I described it as as um, Get Out meets the Righteous Gemstones. That's like what John Carlo's uh, story. Is. Speaking of which, doesn't Matt look like? He's in a room where Jerry Falwell Jr. is watching him from the corner right now. Uh -huh. kind of, there's just something about the vibes of this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. He's, uh, like, he's like, get a lot of mirrors around him. Yeah. Well, no, it's it's backlit and uh, there's a yeah, there's a lot of windows. So uh, this way, it actually looks like Matt's the one sitting in the corner though this time. If I yeah. No, I'm oh, watching yeah, yeah. Jerry <laughs> Falwell Jr. <laughs> and I'm like, do it, do it. Get get cucked for fun. What did he do? I forget what he did. Yeah, he you got fun, basically. He enjoyed That's basically it, I, right? I I like the way you describe it. Yeah. Matt. That's what I always I always I always love to hear people pitch our docs back to us because you never know what's going to happen. Right? He he got Good. cucked for fun, and then there was some real estate involved. I think that's like yeah, the short, yeah, yeah. That's, the that's short answer. The real that's estate hustle is what makes it Miami. Though. I was going to say, like, doesn't it always come back to some sort of real estate hustle? That's correct. Whatever the scam is, whatever the scheme is, whatever new business is being developed here, whatever new industry, whether we're Wall Street South or Silicon Valley East or, mm -hmm. you know, the crypto, uh, the crypto art, art, boom. Right. Yeah, whatever it is, it, you can always uh, chalk it up to some sort of real estate hustle in South Florida. Speaking of which, so you've been like discuss. I feel like you've been tweeting about uh, Suarez, and wasn't he like a big? Explain Suarez and his like crypto <laughs> stuff because like him. I can't even I can't even well, keep track of okay. it at this point. It, Miami is like if Fire Festival was an entire city, <laughs> and and Francis Suarez is that promoter guy. You know, he's mm. like that's who he is. The Billy he's, McFarland. He's, yeah. The Billy McFarland. Like yeah. he just, uh, you know, um, and he just, uh, he's a. He, He's just a, a con man mayor, a second generation mayor, no less. His hair just like slicked back with snake oil, um, imaginary coin salesman, just uh -huh. absolute bullshit artist. We yeah, call him Ponzi. Slick back hair, 
white yeah. white uh, swim trunks, uh, sloppy steaks, etrafonis. Yeah, uh, just a, real a beautiful, beautiful t- bronze tan, <laughs> yeah. eyebrows threaded. I mean, Ooh, like you can't yeah. if if you if like he's a mayor from a Carl Hyacin novel. Like that's <laughs> like that's what he is, and so. He just like he is uh, not a particularly sophisticated or bright player, but he's an affable guy, you know, like a charming kind of uh, 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 like likable scumbag, as Alfred might might say. Um, But like but he is uh, he is the mayor of the ceremonial mayor of Miami. Eighty percent of his time or his job is spent like handing out proclamations and keys to the city to like TikTok influencers, Hell you yeah. know? Uh, so like, so it's kind of a bullshit job, but he's trying to take credit for Miami's insane growth during the, uh, during the pandemic, which in no small part was as a result of this crypto boom and bust cycle when the mayor put a for sale sign in front of city hall and basically to paraphrase the statue of liberty says give us your scumbags your ponzi mm-hmm. schemers your con yeah. men uh, and we'll launder your money for you yeah, you yeah, know yeah. buy <laughs> just buy real estate and you know in bottles at clubs you know and and <laughs> your slurped your ju- uh, juices yearning to breathe free air yearning yeah, yeah. You're uh, yearning to be drank by apes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> give me your apes. <laughs> yeah. So, so this guy only in a post-Trump America would a, would a person this uh, uh, corrupt, this um, uh, incompetent and unqualified think I should run for the highest job totally. in the land? And uh, and it's basically you know like we were talking about before. It's like it's a, it's a bit of a hustle, obviously. You know, follow the money. It's he raise a lot of money, get to spend a lot of money. He gets to take a salary from the campaign. He gets to give money to contractors and buddies and cronies who get contracts and and go out on national television and embarrass himself in this community every single day by saying just the absolute dumbest shit like my foreign policy. The, the Suarez doctrine is we should bomb Cuba while, you know, pro-democracy <laughs> protesters have taken to the street in cries for freedom. It's like, you're going to mm-hmm. bomb Cuba? It, let, let's, uh, wh- what are the Uyghurs? Did you say Weebles? Doesn't know, about, you know, he, he, he puts himself forward as this, as this China expert and this devout anti-communist and doesn't know about the Uyghur genocide uh, uh-huh. in China thinks they're weebles. Like yeah. I, I just, you know, so, uh, Listen, you know, I don't is... know about them killing all them weebelos, but, uh, yeah. I know if you sell enough magazines, you get a pretty big, big one. All right. <laughs> That's what I know. That's yep. is the, is the heat arena still called like the crypto or wait, what was there was FTX. FTX. Wasn't it? Yeah. FTX. Yeah. Yes. And, and, and my, my favorite, my, the best line was the thing was the New York times from Francis Suarez. I'm paraphrasing, but he said something to the effect of like, he, he's like, uh, Sam Bankman fried is the greatest, uh, you know, uh, tech entrepreneur of his generation, probably one of the greatest uh, minds of 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 his generation, and I'm so excited that the arena, our, our you know, arena is going to be named for FTX, which perfectly embodies the ethos and uh, of Miami right now. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, he had no idea how right he was yeah. uh, about that. <laughs> it's a fucking fraud, is what that's, is that's what perfect. it is. <laughs> Did, I mean, uh, was your first ever uh, documentary about Miami the 527 votes, or have you been doing? Have you been covering Florida for a long time? Because for me, uh, I, when I saw that you turned, that's the documentary about uh, uh, Gore losing the election, correct? 537 yeah. votes. 537 yeah. votes. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and um, 
uh, what I loved about it is you guys turned it into a Florida man story, which I had no idea that it was. <laughs> Have you been covering Florida this this whole time? So, was that was that your first go at it? So we started out our very first documentary, Raw Deal: A Question of Consent, premiered at Sundance back in two thousand one, and it was mm. about alleged rape of a stripper at a University of Florida fraternity house. Okay. Um, so you know, very much you know, similar set of facts like the Duke Lacrosse case, which happened a few years after right. that. But this was this happened in 1999, and the alleged sexual assault was captured on videotape. The frat brothers had videotaped the 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 sexual encounter, and so the question of whether or not it was a uh, sexual assault or consensual sex was the question that that needed to be answered. And there's a lot of hmm. Uh, there was a lot. Of, it was a mess the way that the campus police handled it, sure. the, way the state attorney handled it. So Billy and I were at the University of Miami at the time. We took a leave of absence. We were 21 years old and we moved to Gainesville uh, with our third partner, David Sipkin and, uh, and a DP. And we spent three months living in Gainesville. This is like the, the quintessential like Sundance dream story. We, we started we moved there in April of 2000. We were there through the summer. We started cutting. We submitted a cut to Sundance in October of 2000. And like Thanksgiving weekend, we got a call saying, you're going to be invited. Get your parkas, uh, you Miami boys. You're being invited to, to Sundance, wow. and which was thrilling for us. We were the youngest filmmakers ever invited at the time. We're the only ones ever from South Florida. And it was our very first attempt at making a documentary. We had no documentary training. We didn't take any journalism class. We were film majors. Mm. And we basically set out to to go make a documentary. I always talk about the story in the context of the times because it was such a transformational year in terms of what eventually happened to, to the industry. That summer of 99, uh, when, the, when the story first came out, uh, we first got a fast access internet and were able to use Napster. So nice. that was what became the democratization of distribution. Right. And it was also the time where the Blair Witch Project that same summer had been released in theaters and made $140 million. Mm-hmm. And it was the first time that a, a feature shot on digital video was released that widely and made that big of an impact. So the digital tools of production and the digital tools of distribution kind of converged in that summer of 1999 that led us to go make Raw Deal in, in the early part of 2000 and ultimately led us to Sundance in 2001. But we were, shoot, we were shooting that on era. film. We were shooting yeah. on film up until that point. Like mm, actually, yeah. you know, so, uh, and now it's like, hey, we should try this digital video stuff. This seems like the future. Yeah. And you yeah. immediately get invited to Sundance. It was, yeah. it was, it was, it was insane. And like, that was film when, is bullshit. And that was when independent film was hot too. Like, like you guys are basically like if Troy Duffy hadn't squandered his chance on, uh, I don't know what he did, uh, drinks and, uh, and cool guy stuff. Cool guy stuff. Yeah. 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 Uh, trench coats. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> well, this was the last era. Billy and I always uh, we talk about kind of being involved in four different eras of the of the film business, and this was the era when you know documentary was still kind of like you know where you know that you expected the teacher to roll the television right, and VCR right. combo into the you know you'd have to watch yeah. some PBS thing. Right. So documentaries, other than like HBO Real Sex on HBO, probably yeah. at the time, and like right. some PBS stuff, you know, like documentaries weren't there was no market for it. They weren't at Blockbuster Video except Hoop Dreams or like whatever won the Academy Award that year for the most part. And so there wasn't a market. The market was eight studio execs, Lionsgate or Miramax or Fox Searchlight or Artisan, uh, you know, who would potentially buy your, your documentary and release it. But that was your audience. If you didn't get picked up, you weren't going anywhere. And so... Yeah. 
you know, that was that was kind of the last gasp of that era, the down and dirty pictures era of uh, of indie film, uh, you know, that capped off the yeah, 80s, 90s film. I have a lot of questions about the documentary film market as it stands now. But one thing, like I've interviewed Billy, I think it's been, I don't know, four or five times now. But, I, you know, one thing that I have never asked you about and I always forget is like, weren't, weren't you an actor before you were like, weren't you an actor as a kid or is that an IMDb mistake? Like I've never asked you about this before. I, I, lo- I love it. All, all the other premises to your questions that started out totally totally incorrect and here here you're hedging with like maybe i fucked up this google search <laughs> yeah. Yeah. and it's and it's absolutely true it is hey. it is absolutely hey, yeah score, Scott score so yeah, yeah. Um, take that so, yes rocks. yeah i i i i am a recovering uh child actor i suppose uh you could say uh yeah. and and so i i did i that was my that was my entree i mean you know there wasn't a lot of filmmaking opportunities for a five or six year old in Miami in the eighties. So, um, my, Tell my entree, yeah, my, <laughs> my, my entree into filmmaking was, was through, uh, through acting. And, and it was, uh, it was because I, my, my brother was a very gifted athlete, my little brother. And so he would always, his after school activities were always set. There was a season of something, whether it was baseball, football, basketball, I, he was ice hockey he was a crazy little white Jewish ice hockey player in Miami. It was bizarre, but it, he was very gifted. And um, me, I struck out at my first at-bat at North Miami Beach Optimist T-ball. So that was like, it was just not gonna, I made, I made contact. Gotta get with back the, on, the ho- on the horse. I made contact man. with the T, with the oh, T okay. though, which is a strike apparently. So uh, it, it didn't go well for me. Uh, and so I was looking for other activity as I was more, I guess, artistically inclined. And so I had a friend who I saw on, in, on a TV commercial. And I was like, I thought that was the coolest thing in the world. Um, the 80s, she was riding a bicycle in a Sears commercial. I'll never forget it, Jen Shatz. And I said, oh shit, I want to do, I didn't say, oh shit. I, I might've actually. I was, yeah, you said, oh shit. Like, yeah, this is how Jews cursed in Miami yeah, yeah, in those yeah, days. Yeah. And so, Oy, um, <laughs> so uh, yeah, so, and so like, that's what I would do. I'd go to auditions after school and I did, I mean, I did a commercial for every, you name a product sector, and I was in some some probably national commercial for it in, in the 80s and, and into the 90s. And then in 88, Ron Howard came to town. Oh, my God. I did this no-budget movie. I had one line in a no-budget movie with Ernest Borgnine and Linda Blair. Nice. This terrible, like, one of these, like, you know, sort of Italian-produced 80s sort of sex thrillers, like, yeah. that they were a, shooting a, a lot. A spaghetti sextern, yeah. I yes. know about that. And, <laughs> and it's, kind of, it's kind of a miracle, like, any of the dialogue sunk up, even though it was like recorded on, you know, on set in English. It's weird. But like, so I did that. That was funny. And then, and then Ron Howard comes to town casting the movie Parenthood. And, and that kind of changed my, my life. Cause I got cast in one of the, one of the principal roles. We all read for the sun, uh, the role that Jason Fisher played just to see if there was any, you know, I don't think any of us were auditioning for the sun, but we all read for the sun. And then Ron Howard came to town and anybody who he liked, he said, okay, now read this. And so I'm the kid who curses at the birthday party in parenthood. I go, that's the schmuck who brought the horse and let's go watch the horse shit. Those are my, and then I, I have a, I also play third base in baseball. And I have, well, I have a third. My, my mother was appalled that Opie was making me say all these <laughs> these naughty words. But but I also had a great line. I, this stupid line where 
um, not a stupid line, but this kind of throwaway line where Steve Martin is doing, he's the cowboy, he dresses up because the cowboy is a no-show, so he dresses yeah. up as a cowboy. And then I have this line like, oh, you're you're not cowboy, Dan, you're Kevin's father. It's a th- I say it's a throwaway because it's not as memorable as schmuck and shit, but, like, but that turned out to be the clip that Steve Martin brought on to talk shows. So I was on like the Tonight Show with Johnny nice. Carson because they would play the clip of Steve Martin hamming it up as the as the the birthday cowboy and and so I I got to I was that's that was my back doorway on the on the Tonight Show and then right. I did a I did a well that's where I decided to become a director I think because it was like watching Ron Howard who I watched on Nick at Night in Happy yeah. Days and Andy Griffith like I'm like oh like this is clearly the goal of this like yeah. Is to not be the directed, but to be the director, and like right. it was cool to see that. And he was he was lovely, like delight. His whole family was there. Everybody was in the movie, or ha- whether it was like a cameo, like an extra role, or like you know, of course, Clint Howard was in it. His dad was in it, you know. And it was just neat to see that like this was like there was a future in yeah. like for this hobby, like this after school hobby of mine. And then of course I did L.A. Law, which was fun. We we went to L.A. and I did I played Judd Hirsch's son on Dear John <laughs> after Ben Savage got his series. They, they they needed to recast him. And then my my probably my most ridiculous and favorite thing is I did a movie for Roger Corman called Step Monster, that that um starred Alan Thicke and Corey Feldman. And uh, George Gaines from the Police Academy movies, nice. and it was it was a lot of it was a lot of fun, and there was a lot of cool like a lot of cool people uh, who were involved, um, including this wonderful composer Terry Plummery, who later I learned was at his vacation home in Florida and was murdered, hmm. uh, which 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 I've always thought might be a future documentary. Yeah, go for it because there's always a Florida connection. Always and also, murder's so hot right now. True <laughs> crime, true crime, man. People love it. They love it if it's crime. They love it if it's true. If the you know, personal connection to a murder, do it. Bill, yeah. have you seen had you seen Ron Howard uh, again until we interviewed him for Tanning of America? No, that was funny because I I took a picture. I I put it on social like a picture of me and Ron Howard in '88 and a picture of me and Ron Howard in like 2014, where I wound up basically directing him. Uh, in interviewing interviewing him for our VH1 Rock Doc uh, miniseries, The Tanning of America, One Nation Under Hip Hop. Because when you think hip hop, you think Ron Howard. And oh, yeah. so, um, He's so, a big uh, rap I, guy. Yeah. And, and I told him, I said, listen, I said, you're the reason why I'm here, like doing yeah. this right now is because I watched you do this. And I said, that's what I that's what I want to do. That's cool. That is that is super awesome. And also, uh, like, so I see behind you, um, I see an Emmy. Oh, uh, oh, I, oh, I didn't, oh, I didn't know, I didn't see yeah, it there. Yeah, no, uh, very subtle, very subtle. <laughs> yeah, behind me is my yeah. my mother-in-law. Um, <laughs> and, she, and, she, and Jerry Falwell Jr. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Jerry Falwell Jr. <laughs> getting cucked for fun. But, uh, uh, so, oh, and, I assume. And this is our, hang on, oh, hang on, I like yeah. this one. This is our, this is our Edward R. Murrow uh, award. Oh, that, that's a journalism award. Yeah, that happens sometimes. Wow. That's 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 pretty amazing. So those uh, I assume those are for uh, documentary f- filmmaking, or did you win any child actor awards as well? I want to ask if you won any. I thought you were going to ask if they were real. I thought yeah. they, I, I assumed that they're real. Actually, yeah. I'm sorry. I do want to do this because it's way back there. I want you know this is a real like a full size, not one of those yes. local Emmys that are like that are like this Bro. size, like. Bro, this okay. So many people I know oh, who like won local Emmys, they take a picture with it, and 
it takes every ounce of strength not to be like, like that's not a full size. Look at look at my Emmy. I'm like, yeah. well, your Emmy. Yeah. Why yeah. is it? Yeah. Why is it? Why is it the size of an iPhone? Yeah. Why understand. could you swallow it? That's bullshit. Yeah. <laughs> that's a gelt <laughs> Emmy or something. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> You literally can peel the peel the gold foil off of it, and it's yeah. chalk. It's a hollow chocolate rabbit inside. Mm-hmm. It's a, no, I, I got nominated for shit. What's it called? It's like a youth in film award or something. Oh, okay, for like supporting something on uh for for Dear John. I got I didn't win, but I got I got nominated. And the weirdest thing, you guys might appreciate this because there's like a lot of name dropping in this story but the last two pilots back in those days in the 90s like you could only do one pilot a year because they right. owned you like right. it wasn't like now we're like same actors were on like seven different series at the same time yeah. you were you were under contract and they owned you and they decided whether or not they wanted to hire you if the show got picked up or they'd replace you or whatever like right. but you you could only book one pilot a year and so and they made a lot of pilots in those days too like too many too many pilots and so Incredibly, the last two pilots I did before I retired from acting when I was 15-ish uh, years old, I was in the shows with uh, Hilary Swank. Oh, and sure. this is kind of important because like the first show, um, uh, uh, Odd Man Out, um, Ed Dechter and John Strauss wrote it. Uh, later it got picked up when they, after like, uh, uh, there's something about Mary hit, they got another, they got sort uh-huh. of a second lease on life on that show. Cause you know, when everything, every time a writer's hot, it's like dust, can we dust something off? And like, what yeah, do we yeah. have that we can, you know, take out and sell? So, but the first incarnation of this, Hillary Swank played the sister of the lead. I played the best. I played like the white Urkel, basically like the best nice. friend next door neighbor of the lead. And, um, <clears throat> And Hillary, I remember she auditioned, we were on the Warner Brothers lot, she auditioned for the new Karate Kid uh, mm. uh, while we were working on I that show. I saw that in theaters, I remember that. Yeah. Yeah, don't tell anybody that, though, <laughs> And so, um, so, nobody, you're not recording this, are you? Uh, so, so embarrassing. So, uh, long story even longer, it, the show didn't get picked up. Next year, I, I get, I'm living in Miami, going to New World School of the Arts, and uh, we, we do an audition on tape, and they fly me out to test for this pilot, called Reality Check at Fox. And so, I'm, I'm at, again, I think it was, on the, it was like the Lorimar office in the Warner Brothers lot, and they auditioned me. Again, I was playing the brother of the lead. I, that's yeah. always what I, uh, the, bro- the little brother yeah. or, the, or the best friend of the lead. So I was yeah. the little brother of the lead. and um, Always the brother, never the bride. Never the bride. And so, <laughs> and so I, they auditioned me, and it wasn't that important of a character, but I was apparently the last, maybe because I came in from Miami, the last person they were going to cast. So I go on the audition, I go back, and they said, wait in the waiting room which is kind of a weird thing at an audition. So I'm sitting there with my mom and my manager and they come out, they go, okay, great. You got the part. I'm like, that's never, that had never happened before. Yeah. And they said, now come down the hall. The entire cast is waiting to do a table reading. They were just waiting for us to, to lock in your, but again, this is not like that important. Like it's not like that crucial of a role. So right. I go in, I had like, I don't know, six, eight lines or something. So I go in, I meet this kid who's playing the best friend of the of my older brother, uh, Giovanni Rabisi was the kid's name. Wow. Nice. Um, and there's Hillary Swank. And I go, Hillary, what are you doing here? She goes, Billy, what are you doing here? I said, I just got cast on the show. She goes, I just got cast on this show. And um, so that show, uh, reality, was written by, uh, uh, d- don't spoil it for the audience, but it was written by a writing duo, uh, uh, David Crane and Marta Kaufman. And so, so, so let me tell you what happens with Reality Check. Um, reality Check, the same year, uh, uh, Reality Check doesn't get picked up. It wasn't a very good show, so rightfully so. But here's the thing. Um, 
it's like sometimes the things that don't happen are the best things that ever, right, that ever happened to you because reality check doesn't get picked up. Hillary Swank goes on to win two Academy Awards. I become the youngest director in Sundance history for a time anyway. And David Crane and Marta Kaufman did a second pilot that year for NBC called the Untitled Courtney Cox Project um, <laughs> that, that eventually got a title. Um, it was called Friends. Yeah. And I posit today that if re that reality show that you've never heard, I'm sorry, <laughs> reality reality check for Fox, that right. pilot that you never heard about until today, that show gets picked up, it ruins all of our lives and yeah. careers is yeah. what I will tell you. Like, because it will not, it would not have gotten far and Hillary, would, I mean, none of us would like, oh, Giovanni Ribisi's like all our lives would be on, we'd be in some alternate Hill Valley 1985 right now and we'd be, <laughs> yeah. we'd be fucked. Yeah. Kaufman and Crane wouldn't have like $700 million now. Uh, <laughs> yeah. uh, so going back to documentary, I did want to ask, sorry, and you guys can jump off whenever you need to. We've kept you forever, but I am, I'm curious. So like when you guys started out, like I imagine like the way documentaries worked was like, keep it entertaining, keep it short, keep it succinct. You're going to get one shot. Uh, you know, you're, you're going to Sundance, you know, you're, competing with like a very small pool of documentaries and now we're in ever since streaming it seems like the dominant uh like the guiding principle of docs is like more how many episodes of this can you squeeze yeah. out like Find pad another it, murder pad it uh like hold the <laughs> I revelation don't care if you have to go out and kill a guy yeah hold the revelation for like three more episodes like what is it like transitioning from where you started to where it is now to where like the guiding principles of the market seem opposite like completely well i'll tell you this when we when we started th there was no business making documentaries was not like actually like a real business there were people who did it you know there were joe berlinger and bruce sanofsky had done pa the paradise lost docs which was really oh, influential yeah. on billy dave and i uh, when we started yeah um but there were only a handful of people making documentaries there was no industry there were, you know your best hope was to raise some money from some friends and family and get a film at a festival and hope you get picked up but even once you sold it, there was no real place to go because there weren't, you know, it wasn't, there wasn't a home video business for documentaries. There wasn't, right. there was barely a theatrical business and television, like I said, was, was, you know, PBS and HBO sometimes. And so you, seeing the evolution of the business. And so to, to your question, Vince, when we, when we were making Cocaine Cowboys, which we had done when we got back from Sundance and Matt, to answer your question, that was our first Miami movie. Yeah, that yeah. was the first South Florida film. We did the U after that for ESPN's 30 for 30 series, but cocaine Cowboys was it. But we started making cocaine Cowboys. And again, all we had was kind of this loose. We had these archetypes. We had the smuggler and the pilot and the hitman, And we knew we would kind of frame the story that way. And we had this outline, but there was no real, you know, there was no kind of guiding light documentary that we used as a model for it. We just, we kind of made it up as we went along, which is exactly what we did with Raw Deal. And so that takes a really long time. And I remember Billy and Dave had been editing for months and I get a call from them one day and Billy says to me, all right, I got some news. I said, all right, what's that? He says, okay, we have a cop. I said, okay, great. He says, it's four hours long. <laughs> I said, fuck you. I said, what do you mean it's four hours long? What the hell no, are we going to no. do? He, says, he said, fuck you, keep cutting. And he, and he slammed the phone down in, a, in, in, a, in like a very, in a very dramatic era of landlines because we can't do that. And, you know, nobody, yeah. nobody slams. Now you're just like, you know what? Get fucked. 
Yeah, and then you got to pr- yeah, and then, it's, it's like, and then there's like there's like two pop ups yeah. to the zoom window, right. and yeah. you're still there yeah. on it's screen. Like, it's fuck all yeah, god damn. Yeah. So yeah, <laughs> I was like, what are we gonna do with this? It's four hours long. So I said, so they go back and they, and they and they they said, okay. Billy comes back to me and says, all right. He says, get this. It's two parts. The first part is the business and the money. And then the second part is about the violence and Griselda Blanc. Because Cocaine Cowboys is a very almost deceptively simple three-act structure. It's the business, which leads to the money, which leads to the violence. And that's, you know, that was how we had we had structured films. So it's two parts. I said, you know what, Bill? I said, yeah, I was no, we were by, by the way, we we worked for several days, maybe two days after that under that premise that this was going to be four hours long. Was it going to be two feature docs? Was it going to be four one hours? I don't know, you know, but like, that's how we started working, that that was going to be the structure of the thing. And so I, you know, about a few days later, I said, you know, Bill, I said, this is hardly a business anyway. I said, the fact that we're even making a doc like Cocaine Cowboys in this stuff, nobody had told true crime stories this way. You know, nobody had told certainly drug stories this way. Drug stories before Cocaine Cowboys were black hat, white hat, good guys, and the drug dealers are the bad guys. Mm-hmm. And that's how, you know, the DEA agent and the prosecutor are your, your heroes in the story. And these right. are the guys. So we kind of flipped that out of 10. We said, you know, we said this is going to be hard enough to sell into a market, you know, that hasn't recognized anything like this before that, let's make it one doc for now. And you know what, if there's interest, if it sells, if we get a buyer, if somebody, you know, kind of is interested in the story, there's probably going to be an opportunity down the line to kind of tell more of these or a larger story. And I had no idea at the time that I, that I, that I, that would eventually be proven correct, but we got lucky. Um, we made a fateful decision at Tribeca. When we took it to the Tribeca film festival in 2006, we had two offers on the table, one from a company called think film, which went out of business two years later, and the other from Mark Cuban's Magnolia Pictures. And one of the reasons we went with Magnolia was because, uh, well, there was actually three reasons. One, Grand Theft Auto Vice City had come out and become one of the top-selling video games of all time a few years before. Two, Michael Mann had decided he was going to go make the Miami Vice film, finally. And so it would reboot the interest in, in Miami 1980s right. drug stories. And the third was that this was around the time where Universal announced that the Scarface DVD sold more than E.T. and Jurassic <laughs> Park combined on wow. DVD, which for a catalog title from 1983, for that to happen in 2004 was unheard of. But of course, because of Scarface's popularity in the hip hop community and, and getting name checked so many songs, it had this, this, this you know, very robust second life. And the reason we went with Magnolia was because Mark had developed his own DVD distribution operation. Magnolia distributed their DVDs directly to retailers, where other independent film companies at the time used sub-distributors. So Think Film, I think, went through Lionsgate. So there was this whole other level. And we realized that if somebody distributed Cocaine Cowboys properly and really reached a community of younger men, urban, kind of a a very difficult sell for documentaries typically that they would have a big hit on their hands. And so what we ended up conspiring with the Magnolia sales reps do was to approach Best Buy and Circuit City. Remember Circuit City? They were, you know, and, and, and read these DVD stores to market cocaine cowboys in the action section. Don't market it in the in the documentaries, the special interest section next right. to the Pilates videos. You know, right. If you put this DVD next to Casino Royale and Con Air, we're going to move a shit ton of units. 
And we ended up selling like a quarter million units on DVD of Cocaine Cowboys, which is unheard of for a documentary. Yeah. And so as a result of that, uh, we ended up getting to uh, to make more. And it's because this is and so this is basically the story of how we failed to invent the documentary true crime miniseries. That's yeah. like that's yeah. basically <laughs> like like we were right there, you know, we were right there, and then and I, I and also we failed to to invent the podcast when people started telling me when when it when Cocaine Cowboys blew up on bootleg before the theatrical release even. People were telling me that they would rip the DVDR as an MP3 and they put it on their iPods mm. so they could just listen to the documentary yeah. in the car, on the treadmill, on the and I'm like, that's weird, like almost like a radio show. Like, yeah. what a weird that'll never catch on. <laughs> a radio <laughs> play, you say. What are you talking? A radio documentary? This is crazy, you know. Um so <laughs> But I think there's been also a, recently, there was a time when we would come in a few years ago. Well, maybe five years ago, and where we'd come in with a feature doc, and people would go, "Can this be six parts? Can this be ten parts?" And we'd be like, "No, it's gonna, it's yeah. like, it's a, it's a one-off thing." But I think that pendulum has kind of swung back now, because I, because what happened was, I think people, I think sell, uh, sellers took advantage of buyers. I think they brought, they brought stories that didn't have to be that fucking long. Yeah, you know, they, because you can sell more hours, you get more a bigger budget, and you make more money. So I think it just got to the point where now you really have to, if you want a multi part you really have to justify your existence to a buyer and tell them exactly why it has to be you know uh th this long and it's it's much tougher to sell uh, to sell those uh, uh right now those multi-parters i can imagine some exec being like okay you say you got the business and that leads to the money and that leads to the violence. Is there any way that we can make the violence act one somehow? Yeah. <laughs> well, that's the nice thing about working independently as long as we have. We've been very lucky that most of our projects uh, have not been uh, commissions in the typical sense where, you know, we go in with a piece of paper and get a network to approve it and then are just <clears throat> beholden to the channel of the streamer. Most of our projects we develop ourselves and we, we kind of kickstart and push them down the road before we take them out for sale, which allows us to retain a lot more control. And, uh, you know, we still, it's still a collaborative process, obviously, at the end of the day. But just having that, that runway allows us a lot more freedom uh, to really kind of find the story and hone it to the point where we can come in and, and really present a compelling reason for why this is a feature doc or why this is a three-part or why Cooking Cowboys Kings of Miami needs to be six parts. Yeah, yeah we, I we mean, love to, we, yeah. we love to collaborate, and I love I love good. That's another thing too. Is just like it's not that that I don't have an ego, but the thing about my ego is that. I get credit for all the good ideas as the director. So I don't care where the good ideas come from. I'm not too proud to go like, just because someone else gave me a really good idea to not put it in the movie, despite who exactly myself, you know? By the way, I also get the blame when the thing sucks, mind you, uh, to be fair. But like, right. but what I'm saying is like, you like, I love working with objective people, but Alfred's right. If we take a doc, for, when things are that far down in the process, it is a little bit more challenging for a distributor said, oh, well, we, we'd rather it be that, you know, because you're already boxing them, them a thing. Yeah. It's a, <laughs> and, and, and it's also, yeah, you also, uh, you know, it's, it's also clock management too. You run out of time and they want to yes. release it. You know, what are you going to do? Did Mark Cuban give you guys, uh, any, uh, Dallas Mavericks tickets? And, you know, after <laughs> yeah. my favorite, my favorite story that Mark Cuban told me about all this is, um, 
one day back in like 06, um, he's on the team, the uh, 06, 07, he's on the Dallas Mavericks team plane. They're coming back or going to some game and he's walking from the back to the front. And in those days, all the ballers, all the players had the, um, the DVD, the individual DVD players like that right, opened yeah. and folded. Yeah, the yeah, only yeah. people in the world who had those were right. the <laughs> <athletes>. <laughs> it, was, yes. it was a market strictly yes. for buy yeah, for ballers. Yeah. Clamshell yeah. DVD yeah. player. So mm-hmm. they all sat there and, you know, they all, ha- they all had them. He walked out and he goes, and he said, I got to tell you, half, if not more than half the guys with those DVD players were watching Cocaine Cowboys. And he's, and he, and he leaned over to one of them and he said, Hey, is this, uh, what is this? Uh, Cocaine Cowboys? And he goes, yeah, 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 boss, Cocaine Cowboys. And he says, um, and he's, oh, this is one of our, uh, you know, Todd and I, our, my brother and I were at, at Magnolia. This is one of our movies. And then the player goes, sorry, boss, it's the bootleg. <laughs> <laughs> that is the way to watch it though i mean <laughs> yeah, yeah that's just the most badass way to do it you got you got to get the bootleg i mean even in the time since i started writing about movies like I, I covered docs when i feel like nobody really cared about it. it was like back in the day it was like you know it was errol morris and Werner herzog and and even errol morris is still making chipotle doc or chipotle commercials somehow yeah. got, man's got to make a living you gotta yeah. see right and yeah. who doesn't love to eat chipotle yeah. <laughs> and, and, yeah. and i think i think you're right vince i feel like you've been writing about us forever i feel <laughs> yeah and then uh then i got laid off <laughs> <laughs> well, but then so did everybody at ESPN too. So you know yeah, that's right. That. That's right. And 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 our business is no healthier this year, Vince. Uh, the streaming the streaming collapse is, uh, has lowered the tide on all ships. So yeah. uh, you know. <laughs> so are you guys considering uh, doing like three minute docs on TikTok? Maybe you could. We're do just going to start a, a a podcast from my mother in law's house. I think. Uh, yeah, I think that's, that's the way to the do it. Industry. That's the way to do it. You and your mother in law. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, quick question. I don't know much about documentaries. Uh, is porn <laughs> documentary? You, depends you how get, you shoot you get, it. Uh, yes, it depends on how you shoot it. Have they ever made one that's like mostly porn, but also it's like, this is a documentary. I'm not a film guy, so I'm going to ask the worst question here, right? <laughs> well, I'll, t- I'll tell you what. You know, I, I used to teach a, uh, a doc class one night a week at, uh, many years ago, and, and I and. I would drop in and we'd have a conversation about genres of documentary. And, um, you know, one of my, I think one of the best documentary filmmakers uh, of, you know, recent times is Sasha Baron Cohen. Right. And, yeah. you know, and, and because in, he's obviously, he's pretending to be something that he's not, but he's doing that for the purpose of capturing some truth from the person that he is interviewing or interacting with. So, so that is very, you know, and, and and he's, you know, making them comfortable and that's a not uncommon tactic is to sort of find common ground with your subject. So they'll feel more, more comfortable opening up to you. So we're bone on me. I can, I can be as racist or anti-Semitic or misogynist. He doesn't like Jews. I don't like Jews. I'll talk about it on camera. Yeah. Yeah. So, and then sue after, and be like, I didn't know. <laughs> I thought he also hated Jews. That's not fair. That's yeah, not fair. And, and, then, and then you have to write some endless fucking tweet, you know, about, all about yeah, it. Yeah. And, you know, and just make yeah, it go, exactly. Yeah. I spent eight dollars you know. to explain why I'm still a Nazi, but sorry about it. <laughs> Uh, but you know, but I, so I think that that's so that is like there are so I, and 
to Vince's point, porn could conceivably be yeah. could conceivably be uh, nonfiction. Uh, nonfiction. I mean, it's really fucking happening. Um, yeah. Literally, or it's yeah. really fuck. It's really happening. Fucking, fucking is really yeah. fucking Fu- happening. Is really yeah. So um, you know. So, but I think that that's the thing. There's you know, and then there's you know, mockumentaries of which I don't think that you know, Borat is a mockumentary. I think Borat is very much a document. I mean, what is Nick Broomfield and 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 uh, you know, Michael Moore do? They're in right. part playing a character on camera, which elicits a certain you know, a particular response from the subject yeah. that they capture a, a a truth as a result right. of that. A very common technique in. In, in police interrogations is to lie to subjects in order to elicit right. some kind of truth. Interesting. So it's like, uh, you know, the guy fixing the cable, that's like the scripted part of it. But uh, everyone coming at the end, that's documentary. <laughs> <laughs> this has been yeah. What is Documentary that, Matt. with <laughs> Matt Lieb. <laughs> you should. You should. <laughs> I should teach a class. Um, <laughs> That's a, that's a good eight dollar a Twitter blue tweet, Matt. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. just long <laughs> enough to uh, me Welcome for to, me to pay money for it. Welcome um, to the coming and going podcast with Matt right. Lieb. Uh, I know that there's because of the streaming boom uh, with uh, like documentaries that Vince was uh, alluding to earlier. Um, there's been a lot of pressure for documentaries that used to take uh, years and years in order to get all the research and like let let <laughs> things play out. You know, uh, there's it seems more and more I'm watching documentaries that uh, either end with like a trial that doesn't really have an ending where you're just like, oh, everyone got off. And it's like, yeah. And then the documentary was due. So we had to turn it yeah. in. <laughs> Or or they or they uh, they seem to be fairly rushed. Have you guys run into uh, any projects uh, where you they wanted a, a deadline that just wasn't feasible for the amount of research and uh, well, access you needed? Well, you're right. I mean, one of the one of the recent developments, thanks to the uh, the, the you know, we're, the streaming era was a golden age for, for premium docs. And so right. what we saw happening was that stories, kind of the rip from the headline stories, the Firefest or the college admissions right. scandal uh, stories, the quickie Fucking turnaround game stop. Jesus Christ. The game stops sure. up, right. So these used to be, when we were kids anyway, these were the TV movies of the week, right? That you would see on like ABC or NBC. You remember, uh, I think there were two or three Joey Buttafuoco, Amy Fisher TV movies, like within a year of that, case, or or the the John Wayne, the Bobbitt case. You know, uh-huh. there was all these. But now it's Docs, so you know it's no longer the quickie TV movie on Lifetime or whatever. Right. It is now the the we want the nonfiction version as quickly as possible. It's interesting. I mean, we we get approached, you know, about these all the time. You know, obviously when FTX crash, you know, there was mm-hmm. this. I, I think there were three or four announced projects. And it's like the events seem to get like smaller and smaller and more meaningless. Right. Um, there were docs, uh, <laughs> you know, the, the, the GameStop meme thing is a perfect example. Yeah. Uh, you know, what was the one about the, 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 the high school football team that fooled ESPN? Bishop or, Sycamore. Uh, oh, Bishop yeah. Bishop Sycamore story, which there were like three documentaries all once. We've kind of stayed away from those as a rule because it's not the way that we work best. And there's always so much competition for those things. And, they're generally kind of by the time they come out also it's like why are we even you know right. just, you know it's yeah. like such a blip on the radar it's like these instant quickie things that that don't really you know amount to the fact that there were two i mean i remember when there were the two fire festival docs and yes. it was shocking to me how much interest there was in both 
Um, but you know that it's it's I understand it in, in retrospect the Schadenfreude of seeing you know yeah. you know wealthy millennials getting taken advantage of yes. and having deep bologna sandwiches or whatever I get it mm-hmm. but that, that certainly kind of perpetuated that trend and, and we haven't we haven't really touched it it's, I, we we, we got to dig a bit deeper in our storytelling I, I want again and I will say the, the frustration of that is is that of course that you know, stories, some stories need to ripen, you know, people right. need distance, people need time and perspective, people need to, and, and, and sometimes in order to even tell the whole truth, you know, if someone has an agenda on an event that immediately occurred, you're getting more spin than you're getting, totally. than you're getting truth from them. But I will say this, that, that I think that the dueling, I, I, I don't mean to pick on, on the Firefest docs, they were both very entertaining, but like, that is the exam, that is obviously the ultimate example, like within months of each other, two documents documentaries about events that had occurred what a year earlier like right. certainly less than two years earlier in our most recent documentary to be fair all those events took place in the prior tw- 10 years basically you know 12 you know uh yeah. years and and ended probably more recently than any of our docs you know in terms of like uh material story um ended so there is that trend but i also want to say it is also the commodification of nonfiction filmmaking and and yeah. the the movie businessification yes. of the, you know more right. agents more packages more celebrity uh, uh, EPs more and I'm I'm not necessarily complaining about that it 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 it, it for a while it helped drive up the interest and the and the prices you know so yeah, it was yeah, cool yeah. but the, but then you have to remember you know Hollywood is kind of a vacuum of ideas it's not necessarily people living in the real world and interacting with real people and knowing what people are actually kind of interested in and what they right. I mean in our lifetimes how else to explain two volcano movies at the same time two yeah. Christopher two, two two asteroid hurtling toward the earth movies at the same yeah. time yeah, two, two th- Truman Capote movies at yeah. the same time two friends with benefits movies at the same time two two three well, the ants Co- 3D, the, right, the bug, yeah, the yeah, ad, yeah, bug, yeah, and CG animated bug movies at the yeah. same time. The two, the two Christopher Columbus movies, I guess, made more sense because it was around an anniversary. But still, we had two, two Robin Hood movies, you know, yeah. Patrick Bergen and then Kevin Costner at the same time from five. Like, so yeah. I feel like what happens is it's like someone dusts off, you know, so uh, someone greenlights a script. And someone across town goes, don't we have a volcano script in Turnaround? Yeah. Like, let's dust that off. And like, volcanoes are hot this year or what, you know. And like, that's, I don't know. And and so Alfred's right. It becomes like this, so like a bidding war or a self-perpetuating, like, it's like, oh, wait, I'm not going to, we're not going to get beaten with our Firefest doc. We secured the exclusive rights to this person, but they've got the exclusive right. rights to that. So everybody, like, and then it becomes a race to market. And it's like, well, we want to tell a good story well, and we want to tell it, I mean, truthfully and honestly and, right. and so and accurately and so it takes time to do that and i don't want to pick up i don't want to pick on los angeles but to just to just to put a point on billy's uh, point right there you know when we started in the business a lot of our meetings a lot of our work was in new york where a yeah. lot of the the center of gravity for the indie film business was you know the studio films that billy's describing were developed out of la but the more interesting work in film and tell was happening in new york now we have very little business to do in New York. Almost all of our meetings are LA-based. Almost all of the decisions in the streaming documentary world are coming out of Los Angeles. Right. So to Billy's point, you know, there is kind of an echo chamber in a way among stories that get discussed when you're, you know, when your your kids are playing soccer with the kids, uh, you know, who are who are making the decisions and the guys who are making decisions, you know, women yeah. streamers. So there's kind of like an insular community now that exists in the doc business that never did before, at least when it was it was by coast. It's a. It also seems like it's a bit symptomatic of like what happened with the broader economy where it used to be, you know, you start a business to have like a stable 
business model. And then the tech version of that was, okay, you start a business that people think is so cool that you can turn around and sell it for 10 times as much. Uh, and that, you know, and that, that like is basically killing all of the websites right now. But like with docs, it seems like the version of that is, and podcast too. every doc and true crime podcast. It seems like the goal is not necessarily to make like a good doc or a good podcast. The goal is to present it as uh, like a, uh, a, a like a statement of concept for a future scripted series, and like the other yeah. the other day, I was in a movie and like and there was a a trailer for the movie of the fucking GameStop story that like just I feel like the story isn't even over and they've already wrapped production on the fiction version of that. Well, Billy and I were just talking this proliferation of movies about guys taking meetings. That yeah. Got yeah, yeah, air businessmen are the real the heroes, Tetris, right? The yeah. hot sauce, yeah. one, uh, the, yeah. the yeah. flaming hot, yeah, yeah. Dude, I mean, I, it's you know, I, I love by the way, I love the genre, I love the genre <laughs> yes. about deal making and negotiations. Yes. And I think it's, I think it's a trip because I like we, we've been talking, you know, we did a lot of sports docs for a while and then we stopped doing a lot of sports docs, and and I think. I think, first of all, I think most of them have already been made, you know, mm. like how many of these, you know, can these can you do? And also the ones that really probably personally interest us, except for a small handful of things that either other people made or that we haven't gotten a chance to make yet. Uh, but it's a small list. And I, I kind of thought like before this genre really became a genre in the last what year of like six months, I thought. Uh, I've been pitching for years been internally the business of sports docs. Like mm. I wanted, I like, like people have said, are you going to do a big three doc about the Miami heat? And I said, I want that to be entirely front office and agents. Like, yeah, the players, but like not about basketball at all. Just about how did we get to that moment where these three guys came out and came together on that one stage and this one team together. And the basketball is Incidental, the basketball is a title card at the end that they won a couple right. national championships. You know, like like that's I, I. So I thought that that that's really the future, and we have a couple things in that genre that we're actually that we're working on the business of sports stuff. Yeah, Flamin' Hot was insane because they not only did they like not vet the main character or the main subject of the movie, they like willfully like unvetted him, and uh, <laughs> to see that like. <laughs> Go from being like a a movie that got made to screening at the White House. Like, I feel like I'm losing my mind. Like, (laughs) it's wild. It's wild. And I love the uh, Vince, you recently shared something. I don't know who said this quote, um, but uh, Variety put it as one of their 10 bests of uh, 2023. Yes. And they said there's a poetic justice to the fact that Eva Longoria's motivation minded uh, directorial debut overcame the naysayers to become Searchlight Pictures all uh, all time most watched streaming title. And all I can think of is they're just talking about Vince going, but it is fake. It's fake, guys. They lied about the whole thing. I mean, he yeah. well, he didn't actually invent the uh, the uh, flaming hot Cheeto, and they're does, talking does about. It, does you this know. mean I'm not going to sell my spec script Cool Ranch? Or yeah, what not it? Hey, <laughs> You find whoever actually invented it. That would be. Yeah. <laughs> well, well, well. Actually, Vince, funny. You should ask. Let me tell you. <laughs> Just make it up. Yeah. yeah. Let Just, me tell yeah. you. I I made Cool Ranch. I was uh, hanging out at a ranch. I was like, you know, you know, be cool. I want to see my culture, my ranch culture, yeah. represented <laughs> on a bag of chips. And yeah. finally, yeah. I feel seen. 
I, 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 this sounds, this sounds, this sounds like a job for uh, Taylor Sheridan, if ever there was one. If ever there was one. <laughs> wow. And Don't give them ever- more ideas. Yeah. yeah. Just collect enough money. Yeah, yes, this, yes. this is going to be this is going to be on Paramount Plus in a year, probably five. I love that. That's what he scabs for. He scabs for the Cool Ranch movie. Like, I'm scared. Uh, well, I think uh, I think we did. We do it. Did we do a podcast? We did. I think we've we done did a podcast. A pod. We, I, I told your uh, your representative like ah oh, like twenty twenty five minutes, and now here we are, hour and fifteen. You guys are still here. Uh, you guys are crazy, and I like that about you. Yeah. Happy to do it, Vince. You'll podcast with us for you too, an yeah. hour plus. I, I, oh, yeah. I, I actually, I, I must, I saw the, you know, the title of the podcast, and I drank before it, so that, yeah, that's yeah. what I, I thought. You did it I right. That was what we're supposed to do. That's how yeah. it's meant to be. Uh, yeah, you're supposed, to, you're supposed so to three get drink drunk. minimum on this podcast. <laughs> that's right. Get drunk and talk about if docs, if porn is doc. That's that's how we roll. Uh, Matt, 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 Matt's gotten to his mother-in-law's fentanyl. Yeah, yeah, I've gotten in. I am nodding out right now, bro. All right. Well, stay safe up there in the Bay Area, Matt. All we hear are horror stories here. Yeah, I'll, I'll do my best. I'll make sure I got my Narcan ready for me just to bring me back to life. <laughs> there you go. Great joining you guys. Thanks, Vince. Right. Thanks, Matt. Thanks for coming Thank you. on. All right. Take, take care. All right. Before we get out of here... You want to talk about uh, Natalia? I, I mean, I made you watch it. I feel like you made me watch it. the whole thing. You see, I thought you were going to ask these guys about it. Oh, well, uh, we didn't get to it. They have we had too much to talk about. I feel like if we had just been like, hey, you want to spend the next 15 minutes talking about this uh, little person who yeah. uh, was an adult? I feel bad when I when I tell him 20 minutes and then we keep him for an hour. I don't want to be right. that. You know, whatever. you know what, Vince? You have to realize that some people love you. Yeah, that's yeah. true. But when uh, okay, so when you started this documentary and it was about uh, a, a, a a dwarf child who turned out to have pubes, weren't you like okay? Well, yeah, I was like, I'm, I'm in. Uh, yeah, yeah, you're in for the long haul at that point. Yeah, well, so I all right. So for those of you who don't know what this is, uh, the curious case of Natalia Grace is about the adoption of a supposedly six year old dwarf child who uh, eventually, uh, as you the doc series goes on you come to learn that she may or may not be an adult posing as <laughs> as a uh as a child um and we go on from there yeah so we go on from there and yet somehow don't really learn anything yeah and don't incredible go i anywhere. mean we learn we learn everything and nothing at the same time you learn that uh the world is filled with bad people who all know each other uh, <laughs> yeah and, i mean uh, okay so this no this one shit escapes starts- the shit starts intact. out. Sorry, yeah. the shit starts out with this couple, uh, this Indiana couple, and the guy. Uh, he's doing like, like he's a very obnoxious man. He's like the most theater kid. Unbelievable, of a man. unbelievably obnoxious dude. Who I am feeling sorry for for most of this documentary because of the fact that I'm like, his fake crying is yeah. so cringy. Yes, that that. How is he going to live this down? And meanwhile, he's he's living down a lot of horrible things that he's done. Yeah, way and I'm worse. Like, this stuff. is the most cringe part, though. So yeah, like we open, and he's telling the story about how he had it all and lost everything. You know, the classic uh, mm-hmm. megachurch share. Yeah, uh, and he explains about how he had it all to the point where he had a big house in the suburbs and a Lamborghini in yeah. the driveway. Had the Lambo. 
Six episodes. They did not address how this man had a Lamborghini. Nope. Like, what job did he do? Nope. Why did he want to Nothing. have a Lamborghini? Uh, was he parking his Lamborghini in his suburban driveway in Indiana? Like, every single thing. It's like they introduce this, these huge revelations, and then all they do is just bury them in more revelations and right. don't explore. Yes. Them. It's, it's, it's honestly as- incredible. And, and it kind of ties into the conversation we were having before uh, about like deadlines because I did feel watching that documentary like there's so much to cover here and they didn't have enough time. So we never get to learn why they were rich in the first place. At one point, their neighbors say something like, you know, uh, these they're fancy people, you know, they're on magazines. I'm like, why, 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 <laughs> why, why are they famous? I don't understand. Yeah. Um, and, uh, yeah. And then instead it's, um, mostly just, <laughs> I would say a third of it is, uh, reenactments of, uh, the, um, the dwarf doing, or sorry, uh, the little person doing bad stuff, the little person with a knife and, uh, and you know, he and his wife be, like cowering in fear over a, I mean, so the, like the first 10 woman. minutes we learn about the Lamborghini and we learn that the wife, uh, has written a memoir Mm-hmm. Uh, about her autistic prodigy son, which yeah. she's published when he's like, I don't know, 13. And like the the hubris of writing a memoir about what a good parent you are when yeah. your kid is like still in middle, middle school yep. is like up there with just owning a Lamborghini. Like it's yes. uh, a crazy amount of hubris. Like you yes. are... You are just baiting people to root for you to fail, right? I think uh, so. Then and so, like you're, in the you're first baiting five... your son to fail too. Like no, yes. no one's living up to that. No, in the first five minutes, I'm like, okay, well, I definitely don't believe anything that these people say, right? Uh, and shockingly, it turns out that uh, the 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 sociopathic uh, adopted Ukrainian little person uh, that they claim was like spitefully pooping herself and wiping it on her brother's faces in the car. Right. Uh, turns out, yeah, she was probably just a little kid this nope. whole time. Was like literally a six-year-old <laughs> uh, little person who uh, came from Ukraine. And it's like all of the like evidence they're collecting against her where, where they're just like, I'm starting to feel like she's not telling us the truth. And it's like, we had a Ukrainian lady show up and start talking to her Ukrainian. And I was like, she's six. <laughs> yeah. yeah. She's, what do you think? <laughs> yeah. They like they actually didn't um ever tell us like at what age she left the Ukraine, I don't think, or yeah, like, maybe, uh, sort of in there, I guess. Right. Like that yeah. seems like an important factoid in if you're alleging that one of the reasons that you suspected her of being a fraud was that she didn't seem to know anything about the Ukraine. It's like yeah. uh well either I mean she was four years old and living in an orphanage where she probably like was being abused. It seems like. Right. And then Um, uh, like shipped across the fucking Atlantic, uh, to Indiana, uh, and then being like, like adopted and unadopted multiple times before landing with this family who ended up convinced a judge to, uh, readjust her age from nine to 22, 22 years so they old. could stick her in an apartment which was not little person friendly and very much like non-ADA compliant and yes. uh, 
And there's all these interviews with the theatrical dad being like, "Ah, oh, but she's strong. Yeah, and she's like, strong. She can she's... she can do a handstand. I was like, her legs are made of balsa wood. <laughs> she's like, three feet tall and she like, walks with leg braces, but yeah. okay. Like, Dude, the amount of them being scared of like a hobbling little person is finally put into perspective when it, they interview another little person who almost adopted her and was just like, they were not scared. There's yeah. no fucking way <laughs> yeah. they were scared. Yeah. We are little and we are we like severely disabled. I mean, barely able to walk. And uh, it was just like so funny because I was like, oh, yeah, that's right. Because the documentary did a good job of convincing you like, damn, that's scared. That's like Chucky. Yeah. And then yeah. and then you remember it's like, oh, you could just kick Chucky. <laughs> Like, yeah, and then I mean, I feel I would say like probably the most entertaining part of it to me was after they put her in this apartment complex where <laughs> she was I don't know probably ten years old at that point, right? Uh, but they had convinced her that she was twenty two, right? Uh, and then she's just alone all day in an apartment, so of course she becomes like the ultimate nightmare neighbor that yes. like doesn't know how to wash herself, feed herself, right? Uh, has no one to talk to, and of course is just like constantly waiting outside in the hopes that one of her neighbors yes. will feed her, talk to her. It is uh, like it's it's incredibly tragic and incredibly sad. And I, I'll yeah. admit, while I was watching it, I was getting really bummed out because all I was thinking, I knew – from the beginning when they were like tr talking about how she's like, I think she's a lot older. And at first I was like, Oh yeah, maybe she is. And then I started thinking like, well, what, how many years older? What? She's not six. She's nine. Like what yeah. is she 11? Like this is still really sad. And then when they, you know, bumped it to 22, I was like, this is, this is evil. What the yeah, fuck yeah. is going on? I mean, but the idea of having a nine year old neighbor who you're like, I don't know. I've never seen a little person. They say they're 22. Maybe that's what they look like. Yeah. And then they're like in your house eating up all your sandwiches, drinking up all the milk. And you're just like, get this motherfucker out of here. Oh, you f you completely commiserate with the neighbor. Like, obviously, oh, yeah. that would be a nightmare to live with a neglected child who yes. like who. Yeah. Who you can't separate fact from fiction and is just constantly like in your space and yes. desperately needing your attention. Right. Care. Because they are, yeah. <laughs> so they're like, what are you supposed to child. do? Oh, it's so, it was so evil. And I was like, I, you know, yeah, to spoil alert, if anyone's going to watch it, I think I would have preferred it to be spoiled, honestly. Yes. Uh, no justice happens. No Nothing, justice happens. No justice. No. So, like, they eventually Nothing. get brought up on child uh, neglect charges. And in the court case, another thing that they sort of gloss over, like, the judge makes the decision that the age of Natalia is not going to be an issue at the trial so for they child neglect. For they child cannot, neglect. They, they had to they can't refer talk to about her it. legal age, quote unquote, as 22 because a judge one time fucking said she was 22 without even a trial. To the point where his lawyer is interviewing the kid's spine doctor who's like, yes. yes, I'm a literal spine doctor. I could see that her growth plates were not closed. So like, yes, this is fact that she was 
a child and and then the lawyer's like i cannot believe that you would impugn my honor yes. as a lawyer this oh. way sir and it was oh, like oh my is... god this guy should go to prison for honestly lifetime. honestly honestly like, like, yeah and at one point it's he's like well wait so are you guys not interested in the truth and then he's like how dare you yeah uh, well, i am interested in the truth the truth is and i was just like you're a piece of shit you are a fucking saul goodman ass piece of fucking shit dog yeah completely it made me so mad so and then they interview like the jury foreman who was like yeah, we all thought he was guilty of child neglect, but the judge uh, said we couldn't say that she was a child. Yeah. <laughs> and so we were like, fuck, I think you got us. <laughs> and, which pissed me off, too, because it was like, you're the juror. You can still vote to convict. I like, know, what the fuck know, are you talking about? I know. That was what pissed me off, too. I was like, you guys have all the power in this particular situation. I wish one of them had stood up for. Uh, but the thing was, they didn't actually know that she was a child. They, right. they yeah. So that was the thing is they didn't know because no one could testify to the but fact. But they that knew that these people put okay, their quote unquote twenty two year old uh, little person on a in a second floor walk up. Yes. Uh, yes. Like, yeah. What? Yeah. It is. It's like one of the. It's like gut wrenching, like tragic, and also super funny in like how insane the amount of insane people that they and got just like together. every single person in it is like bad basically yes, like yes. the sanest person they found was her neighbor who right. like actually tried to help her and this is a woman who lives like in a slum neighborhood uh they interview her in a windowless room full of like about a hundred crosses and we find out that she has uh four kids nine cats and like three dogs so you're yeah. like like any other time, you'd be like, "Well, this person's yeah." Clearly oh, here's insane. the villain. Yeah, but she's by far the sanest person. Yes. In yeah. The movie. Yeah. And you know, if ever like, there was a movie that t- that just makes you think, "Hey, can we just build a wall around Indiana and just I know like, keep them all in there, never talk about it again." Yes. Yes. Woo. Let them tr- try to escape. Let them but try the, to claw their way up the wall. So, so this fucking thing ends with uh, this never before introduced character who's. Another little person that the mom eventually, the, the mom apparently went to for advice about like raising. Found him on Facebook. Look, I, I guess just looking up for little people and just being yeah. like, who's a little person I could talk to? And then just, proceeds to try to pimp out Natalia, her adopted daughter. This was before. This she is left. sort of unsaid. Like the. the yes, like they, they left. They, they bleeped like they it left out. It heavily implied that they tried to pimp out the daughter. Um, but he does. He does. Uh, he does explain that the mom tried to sexually proposition him. Right. Um, no, and, th- and and the daughter. The, the he. The, they show the the text of the Facebook message, and which it was like, would you be interested in like a night with Natalie or something like that? Uh, yeah, and then and then he yeah. and then he teases that he has some allegations against uh, the dad. And yes. and the, and the documentary producers, uh, they do the the thing that they did with Jordan in uh, the Last Dance, where they show him other people's stories, like on a laptop, just to like film. They do that with the dad, and they're like, "We're gonna show you what this little person had to say about you." Yeah. Uh, then they don't show the allegations. The show ends. 
And that's right the series. And that's the, end the, of series. the series. They never say like, hey, there's going to be another episode. Yes. Like that's the that's the end. Mind blowing. It's like fucking... the most spiteful documentary I think yes. I've ever watched. Yeah. Yeah. Everything about it was it was about bad people made by bad people. Yeah. And I, I you know, and I, I, I feel that, you know, this is another thing that, you know, I would that ties into our conversation with Billy and Alfred about documentaries is that there was a time in which like a documentary when a documentary like was, you know, available for rental or like on TV, you know, uh, there weren't so many of them. So when you saw a documentary, it felt like you were seeing like it felt like the way journalism used to feel like once the public learns about this, those bad headlines come out and then justice is done. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, uh, like it felt like documentaries and journalism did the job of what people think comedy should do. Like, you tell the truth and then, uh, and then change the world. It was like, no, I felt like that was the job of like, you know, un- uh, investigative journalism. Now there's such like a fucking bottleneck of streaming content, content? Yep. about like legal fuckery and bad people who deserve justice that I don't even think like I looked it up. I was like, who's talking about this on fucking Twitter? And it was just Vince Mancini. And I was like, no one else (laughs) is talking about this fucking thing. And all I can think is like this guy and his crazy wife are going to get away with this in the court of public opinion because there's fucking too many documentaries to watch. Yeah. Because there's too because people are too busy watching the Jared Fogel documentary. You know what yeah. I mean? It's just like fucking A, dog. Too many too busy. There's just like too many hours of Vanderpump reunions. Yes. And uh, people don't have the bandwidth for it. it. There's not there's like both literally This and is the real scandal. Yeah. <laughs> It's just like, oh, God, it pissed me off so much. Um, yeah, I want them all to go to prison. I want them all to go to prison and the lawyers. It's just like all of them, dog, all of them. And the documentary filmmakers. I'm sorry. But if you yeah. end your documentary with uh, an allegation that you don't elaborate on. Yeah, well, they didn't even explain why they didn't uh, put the no. allegation. Like you could at least be like, OK, for legal reasons, we can't show the following, blah, blah, blah. They showed the naughty pictures from yeah. the wife, which seemed a lot like revenge porn. Yeah. Uh, but then they did not uh, air the final allegation. The funniest thing was at one point. I want answers. The main character, you know, Michael, the dad. Yeah. Um, he went into a thing about. Who looks like a human monitor lizard. His eyes are yeah. so far apart. <laughs> yes, they're way too far apart. He's he's a pigeon. Um, <laughs> and uh, at one point, he's like fake crying on camera talking about how he was sexually assaulted and he goes <laughs> yeah. there are different types of sexual assault you know there's the one yeah. that you can picture the violent one mm-hmm. and then there's what happened to me i wasn't it wasn't from the sex that i was having but the sex i was not having yeah, and i was like it was, it this was... motherfucker is not about to say <laughs> her withholding the pussy was equivalent to rape but he does Yes, he does. It was like the jazz of sexual assault. Yes, it's about <laughs> it's, it's sex. about the sex that wasn't happening. It's about, it's about the sex that wasn't happening. Yeah, dude, I was like, this is fucking insane. And all I could think was, she's not that hot. She's not even a little bit that hot. Like maybe Indiana hot, 
is different, but I don't know. I, I feel think like based Indiana, on the show, it clearly was. I mean, based on the areas and the neighbors, sure. <laughs> but I was like, there's definitely going to be some like hot white, you know, white trash. There, 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 there's got to be hot people. There's hot people everywhere in this world, man. Yeah, you would think. I, I would know. I mean, I haven't been <laughs> everywhere, but I assume. Mm-hmm. And so it was like fucked up, dog. I was just like, he's like, I was raped because we only had sex six times this year, and uh, she she got me to. By like, the way, how many times over custody of her kids by saying maybe we'll fuck later? And about, I was like, and by the way, how how much sex did you think you were gonna have when you have four kids, two of them with special needs? Like, right? What? And like, yeah, like, one of much? them adopted. You're fucking insane. Like, how much? Just, oh God, it pissed me off so much. And when he gets free, this is the part where I was like, the filmmakers deserve to go to prison. There's no cameras in the courtroom. And so cut to he's exiting the courtroom and he is fucking sobbing. And yep. his mother is sobbing. Everyone's just, crying. Everyone's crying. And he's just like, oh, my God. Oh, my God. And, and I'm just like thinking oh, to myself. Oh, good. Like, they gave him 25 fucking, years. Yes. This guy's. And then he's like, I'm not guilty. And I was like, you guys, fuck you. <laughs> fuck you fuck you no way i hate this and i hate you a little vince yeah that's i you know it's one of those things that you eat and you're like this is so bad you have to try this yeah and it's yeah. weird like i don't feel bad for watching it like no, there was no way i sure. wasn't going to watch it There's but i'm angry i'm angry at everyone yeah especially like because you know, I feel like in the last like three days, like the Supreme Court is just like, uh, you know, it's illegal to deny Jews cakes and bakeries, and like, <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, we're uh, invoking the founders' original "Why you hitting yourself?" Uh, right, intention. exactly. Uh, black people are not allowed at Harvard anymore, and uh, the president has the right of prima nocta now, and so like, uh, you know. Fucking and then the student loan uh, forgiveness was overturned and you know affirmative action and I just like and then watching this and I'm just like I fucking hate it here, dog. I fucking yeah. hate <laughs> yeah, it yeah. here. Why are we here? Let's make know. our own good place. <laughs> yeah, because this place move, sucks. Let's move to Peter Thiel's uh, blood bag uh, island. Honestly, of libertarian. Um, Honestly, Paradise. yeah, maybe he's got to figure it out. He yep. seems pretty cool. He's rich. Yeah, he knows what he. Yeah. Ugh. Anyways, solid so, yeah. B plus. Yeah, solid B plus. That's what's my verdict. Absolutely. Well, that's been a pod. What a good one. We had uh, two Indeed. two fucking celebrated documentarian documentarians. I got to ask them about porn. Uh, Billy and- consistently one of the best interviews that you could ever do. Yeah, he's fantastic. Uh, and uh, Billy, if you're listening to the rest of this pod, come back anytime. Uh, frogcast at gmail.com for all your questions, comments, concerns. Uh, Patreon.com slash frogcast for all of the bonus episodes. Vince, what is the Google Voice number? 415-275-0030. All right, everyone. Thanks again so much for listening. And until next time, good night and good change.